0: Chapter Thirty One. Pandu was aghast that Gangaji intended to make the mango tax an issue. There are so many other vital problems for the Kaurava party to address, he declared. If, at this time of increasing repression by the British, you devote your energies, your moral stature to something as petty, as ridiculous as mangoes, you will make yourself the laughing stock of the nation. He placed his palms together in supplication. Please, Gangaji, please, do not trivialize our great cause like this. But the Mahaguru was not moved. Trust me, my son, he responded, returning with due solemnity to the task Pandu had interrupted, the scrubbing of the ashram latrine. Yes, Ganapati, no endeavor was too trivial for our hero, and he prepared as assiduously for each taking the same care to ensure his brushes and mops and soapy water and ammonia, he had a great faith in the cleansing properties of ammonia, were to hand as he did to ensure that reasons for his national satyagrahas were widely known and well understood. Ganga's first step was to write to the viceroy. The letter was a characteristic combination of impertinence and ingenuity, fact and foible. Dear friend, As you are aware, I hold the British rule to be a curse. Your presence is as its representative, makes you the chief symbol of the injustice and oppression that the British people have visited upon the Indian nation. Yet, I write to you as a friend, conscious of the immense potential for good that your post holds. I have found it necessary on several occasions in the past to call into question some of the unjust laws that have been pressed upon the brows of my people. Indeed, I have been obliged on one or two occasions to disobey them and to lead others in disobeying them, in full consciousness and complete acceptance of the penalties of each disobedience. I consider non-violent civil disobedience to be one of the few morally just measures open to my fellow Indians and myself. Our cause is to defend ourselves against your interest and in our own interests. I do not intend to harm a single Englishman in India even if he is here as an uninvited guest. I explain these things because I need your help in undoing a great injustice which has recently been committed by the government you represent. I speak of course of the mango tax. This dreadful exaction has already caused untold suffering to the Indian masses amongst whose few humble pleasures is the fruit of the mango tree. The tax and its consequences have already caused a severe reaction amongst the people at large. I plead with you on bended knee to repeal this law. I believe it will do your own cause far more good than harm to heed my plea. The estimates of your administrators speak of a potential revenue of some 5 million pounds sterling from this tax, which must surely be of little consequence to a government which earns more than 800 million pounds sterling from its other tariffs and taxes in this country. In addition, the repeal of this iniquitous tax will win you personally with your government much popularity, whereas its persistence can only add to the odium in which the British rule is held. The people at large are already saying that the oppressive foreigners will tax the sunshine next. I therefore suggest that you rescind this decision as much in your own interest as in that of the people of India. Do not forget, dear friend, that your own salary is more than 5000 times that of the average Indian that you tax. And that this colossal sum is paid for by the sweat of Indian brows. I would make so bold as to suggest that the action I urge upon you is nothing less than a moral obligation. In conclusion, this plea, I must add that if you fail to heed it, I shall have no alternative but to launch a fresh campaign of civil disobedience against this unjust law. I would welcome this opportunity to educate the British people in the ethics of our cause. My ambition is no less than to convert the British people through non-violence thus make them see the wrong they have done to India. I do not seek to harm your people, I want to serve them even as I want to serve my own." To this, Ganga received, three weeks later, the following reply. Sir, I am directed by the Private Secretary of His Excellency, the Viceroy, to acknowledge your communication of the ninth instant. I am instructed to inform you that His Excellency regrets the tone and the contents of your letter. And particularly the threats to violate the laws of His Majesty's Government contained in its penultimate paragraph. His Excellency regards this as most unfortunate. I am also directed to advise you that any breach of the regulations in force will be dealt with in accordance with the laws of the land. The letter was signed by a second Deputy Under Secretary to the Private Secretary. Very well, Ganga said, his lips. Pursing in that slight pout that legions of his female admirers continue to recall. Sarah Ben, please arrange to send the entire text of this correspondence to the press, the Indian papers, and the foreign wire services. And do not forget that the very pleasant young man from the New York Times who came to see us last week. Sarah Ben did not forget. And it was she sitting behind him on a raised platform erected outside the ashram who recorded in her large clear hand the immortal words of the speech he made inaugurating the Great Mango March. My brothers and sisters, Ganga said to the crowd assembled at his feet, I have called you here today to pray as we usually do this day each week. To pray for justice and truth and the grace of God upon our benighted people. But today, your prayers take on an additional meaning. In all probability, this will be my last speech to you for a long time to come. As you know, I have resolved to embark upon a Satyagraha to resist the unjust mango tax. Even if the British government allows me to march tomorrow morning, they will not allow me to return freely to this ashram and to you, my brothers and sisters. This may well be my last speech to you all, standing on the sacred soil of my beloved Hastinapur. He was actually not on any soil at all, whether sacred or profane, but on planks of wood, erected to elevate him to the view of the audience. But the lumps were already forming in every throat in the audience, Ganapati, and Ganga was poised to milk every teardrop. I marvelled once more at how wrong Pandu could be. Trivialise the cause? Gangaji could dramatize and ennoble the most insignificant of causes when he chose to. I shall personally break the law by violating the terms of the Mango Act. My companions will do the same. We will undoubtedly be arrested. Despite our arrests, I expect and trust that the stream of our volunteer civil resistors will flow unbroken. But, whatever happens, let there not be the slightest breach of the peace even if we are all arrested, even if we are all assaulted. We have resolved to utilize our resources in a purely non-violent struggle. Let no one raise his fist in anger. This is my hope and prayer. And I wish these words of mine to reach every corner of our country. From this moment, let the call go forth, from this ashram where I have lived for truth, to all our people across the length and breadth of India to launch civil disobedience of the mango laws. These laws can be violated in many ways. It is an offense to pluck mangoes from any tree which has not been marked as having been duly registered and taxed. The possession, consumption and sale of contraband mangoes, which means any mango from any such tree, is also in the eyes of our British rulers an offense. The purchasers of such mangoes are equally guilty. I call on you then to choose any or all of these methods to break the mango monopoly of the British government. A cheer rose up at these words, Ganapati, but Ganga was still trying tears. Act then, and act not for me but for yourselves and for India. I myself am of little importance, a humble servant of the people among whom I have been privileged to live. I am certain to be arrested, and I do not know when I shall return to you. My dear brothers and sisters, but do not assume that I am gone. There will be no one left to guide you. It is not I, but Dhritarashtra who is your guide. He is blind, but he sees far. He has the capacity to lead. And so, Ganga soaked his listeners in their own emotions and anointed Dhritarashtra as his successor with their tears. It was at that point that Pandu, who had disdained the cause, but come to the ashram out of loyalty to the Mahaguru, walked out and never returned to his teacher's side.